Amen. Amen. You guys can grab a seat. I just came down the hill with over 30 people as we did a men's retreat this last week. So I smell better because I got a shower this morning with a little bit of sleep. There's still plus 30 guys that are coming down stinky. It was very fun. It was incredible. And the only injury I think we had is when one guy was playing um, baseball with a stick and a rock and the rock broke and the rock went into his face. So he'll have some fun wounds from that. But that's normal stuff for a guys retreat, right? A great time. Thank you for praying for us. I, because of that, I'd asked, reached out to a really good friend of mine of almost 20 years. I was thinking about, I was trying to do the math and asked if he would come and teach. So this is Ryan. You can come on up here, Ryan. I've known Ryan for a very long time. He's been a good friend and he is the pastor of Table Rock Church just up the hill at the train depot where they are. They're going to have their public launch in September. The meeting since April, right? Mm -hmm. You got those times right? Okay. And we're super excited to partner the gospel. Um, it's been really fun to just pick each other's brain, learn from him what he's doing. And I'm just excited to see what God is doing up there. And he has graciously decided to come down here and, and down that long hill, you know, and, and, and preach to us today out of God's word. And so I'm going to pray for him as it is just an honor to do these things mm. together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for what you're doing in Table Rock Church and what you're going to do through Table Rock Church. We thank you for what you're doing here at Rev and what you're going to do through that. And God, we thank you that it's neither those names that matter, but the name of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I thank you for Ryan and his heart, for your word and for you. I thank you that he is here to preach to us. I pray, God, that the distractions would move away. I pray that you'd be with Don as they are in the middle of service up there as he's preaching for Ryan at Table Rock. I pray that you would just be glorified as we continue to see this valley move to make much of your son, Jesus Christ, to bring more people into your kingdom to celebrate more of what it means to have your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. And so, Father, as we, as we dig into the word, I pray that we wouldn't just listen, or I pray that the distractions of maybe not knowing right would get out of the way, but instead that your word would just speak directly to our hearts and that your Holy Spirit would challenge us, would convict us, would encourage us wherever, wherever we are needed, wherever we are needed in that sanctification journey. God, would your spirit do that through this time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Brent. Yeah, Rev, it's my joy to be here this morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, like Brent said, my name's Ryan, and I'm a Boise native, have been born and raised, left for a couple years, and now I'm back, and we're planting a church called Table Rock Church up at the train depot, and we are just excited to be here making much of whom God is. But before all that, about 18 years ago, I was a part of this little-known company called B&R Lawns. Yes, you guessed right. The B in B&R Lawns was Bren. The R was Ryan. Luckily, we were smart enough not to call it R&B Lawns. That would be the ultimate in false advertising as two unhip white dudes showed up in a 58 GMC to mow the lawn. I really enjoyed that season, and I learned so much during that time. I learned that Bren is an amazing salesman and sold circles around me and got all of our clients. I also realized how passionate he was about business, that he would take jobs even like literally crawling through rose bushes to install drip line or cleaning up a yard full of months worth of dog droppings to make sure that we had business on the table. But I also learned that we were in that business together. We mowed rain or shine early and late. And even more important than that, we were in this crazy ride of loving God together. And that's like you guys, Rev, like you and Table Rock, we are in this journey together. We have been called by our wonderful God to make much of him. You know, our call is the same. You know, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus, what, what is it that's the greatest commandment? And what he was asking was, what are we supposed to do with our lives? And look how Jesus answers in Matthew 22. Jesus' answer is, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Right? We are in this together to make much of who God is, to love him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind. We want others to see how amazing and gracious our God has been to us through Jesus Christ. We want them to love that about him. And then out of that love that we have for God, it flows out. It bubbles out to those around us. We just can't stop it. And that's what I want to talk about this morning, is that second part of that commandment, to love our neighbors. Now, I know many of you might have heard sermons about this before, and often what happens when we're told it's a sermon about prayer or evangelism, we start to feel guilt. I don't do that very well. I don't reach out well. And please, let me take that away from you this morning. That's not the goal. Rather, the goal is to say, who does God love? He loves people. And I think often we forget the reality of what the people are like, what we are like, that God loves. Who are these people that he loves? So I pray this morning you walk away with three things. One, God loves diverse individuals, all sorts of gifts, talents, personalities. And God is looking for diverse individuals from all over this world people from different tribes and nations and tongues, that they might glorify him. And third, all those people, just like you and me, God is after sinners. So those are the three things we're going to look at this morning. The first two, we're going to look at Matthew 28 to see that. So Matthew 28, 16 through 20, this is right after Jesus was buried and raised. He's now meeting with the, the disciples before he ascends to heaven. And here is what he says to them. He says, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We're going to look at that small section, make disciples of all nations. No matter how we think about it, making disciples means we're going after individuals, people that God loves, that he wants to have know himself. We see all through scripture that God is pursuing individuals, Adam and Eve, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, we see again and again, he comes and makes promises and enters into relationship with these people. And the goal isn't that that relationship just stops and stays there. No, rather, his heart is that out of that relationship, others might know him. That they might be excited to let others see what an amazing God who has come to them, even in the state that they are in. So we see that story begin to unfold throughout Scripture. And when we look at something like Isaiah 43, we can see how God talks about this himself. He says, I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. God made people all over this world, his sons and daughters, that they might bring him glory through what he's done and knowing him. 
And we see that story played out through Scripture. At times, very poorly, as the nation of Israel holds that knowledge and doesn't want to share it with others. But finally, God does what no one could do, which he comes and ensures that that message will go out to all people. Jesus, very God and very man, arrives on the scene. And here's what gets prophesied about him. The high priest of Israel prophesies about Jesus. This is in John 11. He says, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. You know, Jesus comes, that that promise that's been made throughout all the scripture to individuals, to the nation of Israel, might finally come to fruition that they might come and actually know God, that all of his people might be brought in. And that's why Jesus, the one who came, who died on the cross and raised himself up in power, can say in our passage, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. He has authority because he is God. He's accomplished what none of us could do by bringing us back to God. He is the salvation for Adam and Eve, for Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the nation of Israel, and for you. Here's how Paul says it in Ephesians 2. He says, And he, Jesus, came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, Rev, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Stop and think for a minute what, what we're saying about Jesus Christ. He's very God of God, fully man. He came to earth to live a righteous life, that you might have that righteousness. He died your sinner's death on a cross that your penalty might be paid. And then he raised himself in power that you might have hope. That you might have hope that what God is beginning in you today, the way he's beginning to transform you into the likeness of Jesus, will someday be completed. That you will walk in relationship with God fully in the new heaven and the new earths. What a sweet joy that is. God is saving sons and daughters, diverse individuals from all over this world. You know, I find it funny that so many people, when they think of Christians, they, they think of something like this, this picture. It's from a 1984 Mac commercial. This is how Mac people thought PC users looked in 1984. One sea of monotony and blandness. And that's how people think of Christianity often. All the same, no differences. And I say, have you read the Bible? And that's not who God saves. Think about it. You've got this man, Noah, this old crazy man building an ark, telling people a flood is coming while animals start coming to him. Right? Think of Moses, the adopted son of a slave woman, raised up in Pharaoh's household, who rejects it that he might lead God's people out into the wilderness and into a promised land. David, the youngest son, a shepherd, who becomes a man after God's own heart. Rahab, a prostitute, turned God-fearer, who hides the slaves as they come into the city. Ruth, a Moabitess, who does some questionable things to win the favor of Boaz. 
Look at Jesus' disciples, tax collectors, fishermen, ex-Pharisees who killed Christians. Look at the New Testament, slaves, merchants, tent makers. Again and again, God uses all kinds of individuals, peoples, a diverse people for his glory. It's through these individuals that he reveals his glory. glory. It's like a, a multifaceted diamond through which God displays his different glory in manifold ways that we might see and know him through his diverse people. And we need to hold that intention. We hold this tension of these individuals that God is going after with the fact that God also tells us he's going after peoples, a nation, larger groups. In fact, the language in our passage this morning makes us have to think about that. Disciples from all nations. Let me take you back in the way back time machine for a moment, back to the 1970s. Okay? It was a great decade, sort of sad at the beginning. The Beatles disbanded. Richard Nixon was president and then not president. Don't know how to feel about that one. And then Disney World opened up and I was born. It was a good decade. And in 1970s, Christianity, evangelical Christianity, was ecstatic. There was 196 countries in the world, and they had missionaries in every single one of them. And they were celebrating. The Great Commission was done. We have everyone there. All we got to do now is grow those churches. It's no big deal. Well, not everyone agreed with that assessment. In fact, there was a conference held in 1974 called the Lausanne Conference by, by Billy Graham, and he brought in this little-known professor called Ralph Winters, from, from Fuller Seminary. He, he gave a talk on this paper that wasn't a really exciting topic. He just said, the highest priority, cross-cultural evangelism. And everyone says, amen, we finished. And he proceeded to drop a bombshell. And he said, you guys have been thinking about this all wrong. All peoples, all nations is defined as tongues and tribes and languages. We haven't even begun to make this. In fact, there might be 17,000 different people groups out there. And this, this ignited a major debate throughout Christianity. Who are these people? How do we know if we've reached them? And let me just give you a taste of that problem. When Wycliffe translators went into Sudan, they looked at the nation and said, we need 50 Bible translations. There's 50 languages that people can read. When the Gospel Recording Project, who makes little, uh, little USB drives that have the gospel on it, went in, they said, we need 130 different recordings. Because there's people who don't even have a written language. They can't read anything at all. And if we don't give it orally, they'll never hear the gospel. At the very least, all, all of us can agree 196 was falling quite shy of engaging all the peoples of this world. Now, there's an example, I think, that gives us a picture of this, of God's priority of not only wanting individuals, but also wanting nations and tribes. Think about it for a minute. You're out in a ship and you hear a distress signal. There's, there's another ship that's had an accident and people are overboard. They're calling for help. So you send out two of your lifeboats, little speedboats, head out to go and try to find the people and save them. And you get out there and you see all around you heads bobbing in the water, people yelling for help, more people than you could ever get in those two little boats. So you start helping them. And then off in the distance, about a half mile away, maybe more, you hear more voices. And you realize two ships had collided. One sunk over there, one's over here. There's people yelling for help over there. What do you do? You've got more people in front of you than you could ever get on your boat. Do you leave? Do you go to that far? And you might get over there and they might be dead by the time you get there. And God says, yes, go. Not all of you. But in God's, 
God's magnificent grace, he's decided that it would glorify him best if there were people from every nation and tribe and tongue proclaiming the wonders of Jesus Christ and what he's done for them. That's why God lets us see the end from the beginning. When we get to Revelation 5, 9, this is what he says. He says, Worthy are you, this is the angels proclaiming to Jesus, to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on this earth. God lets us see that end from now because he's given us a role to play in that. It's not going to be all of you. Most of us are called to stay right here in Boise, where we're at, whether it's in school or in our jobs, in our neighborhood, and reach out to those right around us. Connect with them again and again that they might see and know God. But some, some are called to hear that voice far away, even though there's many right in front of them, and say, I'm called to go. I'm called to go because God wants them to know him. God wants them to proclaim Jesus Christ. And so, Rev, I've got a a couple practical questions for you then based upon what we just talked about. The first one is, do you value differences in the body of Christ? Older folks, people over the 30, do you love millennials and the way that God made them and the passions and priorities that they have? Millennials, do you love those older people set in their ways and the things that they want to do? Families, do you love singles and what God has gifted them with? Singles, do you love families? Students, do you love those who are currently working 40 hours a week and those who are working 40 hours a week, do you not begrudge students in their time? All over, God has given us different stages of life, different giftings, different passions. Do you value that, Rev? Do you see how God is growing you through that and how he is making himself more glorious by bringing different peoples to himself. And number two, do you value reaching the unreached? It's been said before, if you're not a goer, you're a sender. That's your only choices in scripture. If you value what God is doing, you are either one of the ones called to go or you're called to support those who go. Do you value that? You see, I think this comes against one of our main difficulties with reaching out to our neighbors is, man, who wouldn't love it if our neighbors were just like me? I could talk with that person for hours. We'd have all sorts of things in common, and it's fantastic that we even speak the same language. Imagine when we engage with others who aren't, right? Praise God that they aren't all like me. Praise God they're not all like you. Praise God that he's bringing people who don't speak English, who can say things in their language to the praise of his glory that English can't capture. So let me give you a practical question then, or a practical example. As a Christian, you can fall on all sorts of lines politically. You can fall on all sorts of places with immigration policy. But you have, and I have, a special privilege. Like it or not, there are people from every nation and tribe and tongue coming to us. They want to be in our country. They want to be in our cities, in our neighborhoods. And if you don't see the value of having someone who is both diverse individually and from a different language and tongue right in front of you, I think you're missing the heart of God. Go after them, Rev. Learn to love them. Cross those borders that are hard to breach. Those ones that say, I don't understand how you do things. I don't even know your language well, but I want to love you. Not for the sake of just being diverse, but that you might value them as image bearers of God and that they might come to know and love Jesus. 
So, so maybe the shoe fits over there. Maybe you look at that and you say, man, yeah, that, that's hard for me. It's hard to find joy in the diversity. It's hard to reach across cultures, whether it's age cultures or even literal tribes and tongues. But let's look at another example, which broadens that category even further, which is sin. You see, when I think about sin now, I not only have to put up with my quirky family member or that weird guy down the hall in my dorm, I also have to put up with that bigot who stands downtown and says things I don't agree with. I also have to engage with the person who sinned against me. And praise God, when I think about sinners, it means that I am included in the list of those whom God loves. Because that is who you and I are. We're sinners. And praise God that he engages us. For this, we're going to look at Mark 2, 15 through 17. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why, do we, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. We need to remember that as we drop into Mark chapter 2 here, Mark is showing us again and again how Jesus' ministry is all about reaching out to sinners. Mark 2 starts with the paralytic, where the, the men lower him down through the roof to Jesus, and Jesus does the most interesting thing. He doesn't comment on his physical state. Rather, he says, son... Your sins are forgiven. That's odd. Now, the people there realize a problem with that, that only God should be able to forgive sins. But, but think about it for a minute. Jesus isn't amazed by his friend's effort. He's not amazed by the man's physical condition, nor is that his primary concern. His primary concern is that the man is a sinner, and he needs help. In fact, when he does eventually heal the man, he tells us why. He says he heals them that... Quote, you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Even healing him physically was that we would know that there's a sin problem and we need a solution. And the solution is Jesus. Interestingly, it keeps continuing. Jesus continues to focus on sinners. It, the story goes on in, in Mark chapter 2. And the next thing he does, he goes and calls Levi, one of the disciples, a tax collector. Right? And now he's, he's not just an ex-tax collector, a former tax collector, a reformed tax collector. He's literally sitting in his tax collecting booth. Now, tax collectors were seen, seen as unscrupulous. For any young people in this room, unscrupulous means he stole money from people while he took their taxes. It's how he made his money. Right? Jesus engages with him at the tax booth and comes to him in Mark 2.13 and says, follow me. And up he rises and follows Jesus. I don't think I can come up with a category that would shock us enough today of what that was like. To have Jesus go after a sinner where he was at and call him to follow him. And then as we get to our passage, it continues on this narrative of Jesus with sinners. He's dining with them. And it freaks out the religious leaders. Why are you doing that? And Jesus answers in Mark 2, 17. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You know, that, that should shock you a little bit. I, I think often if you're a believer this morning, we stop remembering who we are and we begin to think, I'm pretty right, I'm pretty good, right? Like God should have let me in the door. I'm not that bad of a person. 
Let me just remind you this morning what Scripture says about us again and again. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 1 Kings 8.46, For there is no one who does not sin. Genesis 6.5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. Psalm 14.2, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Psalm 143.2, Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. Isaiah 64.6, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take a hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us, and you have made us melt in the hands of your iniquity. That's meant to be a reality check, to bring us back to our situation and who we are before God, a holy and righteous God who does everything perfect, and we are not. We are not perfect. We fail again and again. And we are to be like the prophet Isaiah who says in Isaiah 6, 5, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man or a woman of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Or like Job, who was the most righteous man, the Lord told Satan at that time, right? I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. We're to remember that we are sinners, that God rescued us as sinners, that we had no other hope. We could not clean ourselves up well enough to come before him. We needed a God who would intrude on our lives, change our eyes, change our heart, change our ears that we would love him and bring us back to him. And I think we forget this and it affects how we engage our neighbors because we become quick with Paul to say in 1 Timothy 1, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Stop. He saved you guys. I'm so glad he came for you guys. You guys are such sinners. You really needed Jesus. That's how we begin to treat our neighbors. Uh, you guys really need him. And we forget to finish that statement and say, of whom I am foremost. You need God like I need God every day. My only hope is a righteousness that is alien to me that comes from Jesus Christ. My only hope is a relationship with God that means I have his Holy Spirit in my life who is now helping me to live the way Jesus would ask me to. Not because I'm trying to clean myself up to make myself look better that he would finally let me in, but rather out of love and joy that God has met me, I now respond in a life that glorifies him and honors him. You know, I have to admit that this is part of one of my major problems. I like to clean myself up on the outside. I like to look good to people. And Jesus has harsh words to say to people like me in that moment. He, he says to me what he said to the Pharisees, which is, you are like a whitewashed tomb. You try to act like you're all good on the outside. But you're like a dead, rotting corpse on the inside. We diminish the grace of Jesus when we don't let others know and remind ourselves that we are sinners and that our only hope is Jesus Christ. Now we do that. 
We do that not to make people feel bad, but rather to bring them to joy, to bring them to joy in Jesus Christ, and, and not to get callous to our sin, nor to get crushed by it, but to realize that any time we come to Jesus, whether it's for the first time or the hundredth time, there is mercy and grace in the blood of Jesus Christ. We repent. We come back and say, Lord Jesus, I need you. You are my only hope. Luke, in Luke 5, citing the same story that we're reading here in Mark, adds an important little phrase to the very end of the story. Luke says it this way, And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners, what? To repentance. Turn back. Come to me. Admit that your only hope is Jesus Christ. And that's what we want for our neighbors. That's what we want for all people, that they would come back and see that the only hope they have is Jesus. And if you're here as a believer, what I pray you don't forget is what Romans 5.8 says. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Praise God that he came and rescued you and me, a sinner. So Rev, let me ask you a couple questions from this section. And let me give you an encouragement first. As you realize this, as you look at God and remind yourself today that you are a sinner, praise God. Love God. It's not meant to be something that crushes you, but rather you find joy in a God who has saved you. Do that first part of the commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind because he has saved you. And then in the overflow of that love, pursue sinners. Pursue them. Remember what our passage says today about Jesus, that, that he was there with many sinners because many followed him. It's said twice, many. Is your life full of many sinners? Will you go engage with them? Will you find them? Will you love them for the sake of them knowing Jesus Christ? And that, that leads to the next two, which is it will be messy and it will be hard. Look at Jesus. He was called friend of sinners and tax collectors. That wasn't a great title. That was not meant to be some sort of adoration of him in those days. It's meant to demean him. You will be looked down upon as you engage sinners. And are you willing to do that? And then let me ask you a practical question. Is there a particular sin that you won't go near? We like to hide that sometime with phrases like pet peeves. Oh, it's just a pet peeve. I can't be with them. They just annoy me. Or at other times, we like to say that there are particular sins that are so heinous we will never even go and talk to that person. We demean the fact that they are made in the image of God and never pursue them. What are those sins for you? I think right now in Christianity, we've made many of those sins high and mighty. We make things like who you hang out with, political affiliations, or even things like your sexual attraction as ways that we will not even engage with you if those are your struggles, no matter which way you view the struggle. Will you push in to sinners because God pushed into you as a sinner that you would love him, that they might love him? Our call to love our neighbor, Rev, is a call to love all peoples, diverse individuals, people from every tribe and nation and tongue, and people who are sinners like you and me. If you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever, I pray what you would hear is that God is after you. 
All of Scripture is written and shows you this amazing God and what He has done. He's left heaven so that you might come to Him. He's the God-man who died for you and His blood is sufficient. You do not need to clean yourself up. There is no sin that puts you too far away from God. Love Him. Repent in faith alone and find mercy and grace in Jesus Christ. And if you're here this morning as a believer, I pray that you will press into all those peoples, all those neighbors that God puts around you, and maybe even listen for the call of God for those people that you might not even know yet, that you might pursue them, that you might love them, that they might know Jesus. I want to leave you with this exhortation, Rev. James 2.1. My brothers and sisters at Rev 22, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ the Lord of glory. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we, we don't want to hold partiality, but we know that it's only you who's been able to perfectly love. And your perfect love looked like death on the cross for sinners. Lord God, would you continue through the work of your Holy Spirit to change our lives, that we might even in small ways exemplify that love to those around us. Would we value the gifts and the talents and the treasures that you give in your people? Would we look for those that are far and wide that they might proclaim the name of Jesus? And God, would we remember that we are sinners? Lord God, would we repent of it and find in you, in Jesus Christ, mercy and grace? And would we bring other sinners to you as well? Let them see that their only hope is a God who died on the cross for them. Would you meet us in that way today, Lord Jesus? It's in your name we pray. Amen.